0: Fun Ideas Productions presents The Fun Ideas Podcast We see the
1: syphilitic
0: shrinking Obelisk The white man game show trolls the smiling lie of the tale of Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 67. This episode is sponsored by the fine folks at Lee's Comics. Attention comic book fans, Lee's Comics of Mountain View, California has closed. But here's the good news. Lee's Comics eBay store is still going strong with over 10,000 vintage comics, the majority of which are now on sale for half off. Choose from Lee's huge stock of golden, silver, bronze, and modern-age comics and specializing in Silver Age Marvel titles. You can count on friendly service, accurate grading, and quick, secure shipping backed by a money-back guarantee. To check out Lee's eBay store, go to eBay. Click Advanced Search to the left of the search bar, scroll down to Sellers, and enter Lee's Comics, Inc., period. That's L E E S C O M I C S. I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Lee's Comics is shipping daily with no delays. New items daily. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast and get a free bonus gift. The following interview was recorded prior to the COVID-19 shutdown. Any appearances mentioned by our guests have either been postponed or canceled. We hope that you and your family are coping during this pandemic. The final episode of this season was scheduled for the first week in May, But since many are quarantined, I have decided to do a few more new episodes during the summer break. Let me know what you think. And here are some recent comments about this podcast. I really appreciate the kind words. Here's a five-star review on iTunes from the Bucket of Blah Blah says great guests skilled interview arnold has a good pop culture pedigree so he gets terrific guests and knows the right questions to ask the ideas presented are indeed fun another one from gallery informative and fun interviews of comic insiders i just listened to mark arnold's interview with peter bagg it was excellent Great history on the hows and why Mr. Bagg got into comics and interesting insights of his career. And here's another one that's on Podomatic from Julia Cole. This was a great interview with P. Bagg, one of my favorite artists. I've been buying his work since the weirdo days and I have a complete collection of both neat stuff and hate. This was a real treat to listen to. And now the Fun Ideas Productions news. I'm still waiting for the Warren Kramer book, and I just turned in the Total Television Scrapbook. Beetlefest has been postponed from March to October 2020, and our travel agency has also been postponed for the time being. I am currently working on articles about Hee Haw, Sid and Marty Croft, Underdog, and the Pink Panther for Back Issue Magazine, as well as the Mad Book and possibly a Disney book. Our guest today is... Has had a lengthy career with Matt Groening and The Simpsons, as well as his own Roswell character, and was recently the editor of Mad Magazine before it shifted to a virtually all reprint format. Here he is, Bill Morrison. Okay, so on the phone today I have Bill Morrison. How are you today, sir? I'm
2: doing well, Mark. Thanks. How you doing?
0: Oh, very good. Um, just wanted to talk to you today about your career and things you've done, and uh, I know you've done it quite a bit. So let's start at the beginning, as I usually do, is uh, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in comic book art and writing.
2: Well, I think it probably goes back to the Batman TV show. Um, you know, I was I was drawing before then as a kid, but I think once I saw that show um, Everything kind of changed You know, that kind of got me into Wanting to read Batman comic books And doing that Kind of introduced me to a bunch of other comics And just, you know Sort of became a comic fan And uh, from that point on Once you once you see all that great artwork You start going, huh, I can draw Maybe I can do that And uh, so that, that's what probably Put me on the road to um, wanting to be a comic book artist, however, it took me years to really get there. Uh-huh. Um, I I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, or outside of Detroit, and um, you know, there's not a lot of opportunity here. To be a comic book artist off the bat, I mean, you can you can be a comic book artist here once you've sort of established yourself. But back in in those days, you had to go to to New York. Right, that's where all the companies were. And um, I had this weird fear of New York, and I think it was um, fostered by too many. Uh, watching too many Martin Scorsese movies and too many 70s cop shows. Um, You know, so back then, New York just seemed like a really scary place. So when I was in art school, I I thought, uh, I don't know, I don't know about moving to New York. It just sounds really hard and it sounds expensive. and um, So while I was in art school, I discovered a love of airbrushing airbrush illustration and um particularly the kind of stuff that was being done out in California the west coast airbrush style mm. um and you know my heroes were David Willerson and Charlie White the 3rd and Peter Palombe. and so i started sort of uh, designing my portfolio to get that kind of work mm. And uh, so anyway, that's where that's where I ended up. I ended up out in California uh, painting movie posters and um, and doing some general advertising illustration.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And and it wasn't until uh, some years later, having met Matt Groening and then after he started The Simpsons, that I got involved in that. And um, it was Matt's well, Matt's lawyer when he made his deal with Fox. I don't know if many people know this, but Fox owns The Simpsons, but Matt Groening, through his lawyer, was able to retain all the publishing rights. huh. okay. And so that allowed him to start his own comic book company, which was Bongo Comics. And uh, I had already been doing work with Matt on a lot of other publishing projects that were just being done sort of, you know, he was making separate deals with all these different publishing companies. Mm-hmm. But when he decided to start Bongo, then all of those um, publishing projects kind of were brought in-house to Bongo, and we had a a staff and a team of people that were working on not only the comics, but also books and calendars and anything Simpsons-wise that fell under the publishing umbrella. Um, So that's kind of my, my... prehistory or early history in a nutshell, I guess.
0: Okay. Uh, A couple questions based on what you said. So where did you go to art school? Uh, Where or when? Where, well, where more than when, but when's fine, too. (laughs) Um,
2: I went to art school at the uh, Center for Creative Studies, which is what it was called then. It's now the College for Creative Studies in uh, Detroit, Michigan. Oh, okay. And uh, so I went there for four years and studied illustration and uh, when I got out The only real opportunity For me to, as a young artist In Detroit Was working as a technical illustrator Um no. And what that is okay. Is basically when you When you buy a new car And you get that owner's manual And it's got these illustrations That show you where to fill the oil And
1: uh, uh, okay <laughs> how,
2: to, how to fasten your seatbelt And all that kind of stuff Um I did all the line art illustrations for those And then also um, mechanics guides You know, anything that needed a technical drawing Showing people how to do something Having to do with either a, an automobile or a truck Or we actually even had a contract with TACOM Which was the Army tank unit uh, It was a company that made tanks for the U.S. Army
1: wow. <laughs>
2: And uh, so I did, did some of those you know, drawings of tanks and tank parts and things like that.
0: I, I guess that helped you later. When you know some of the Simpsons things over the years have been very intricate and elaborate. Sometimes you know just because uh, you know the, very detail oriented on some of the things that you did. Uh, you know that I've seen over the years is that uh, probably stemming from that type of background.
2: Yeah, I think that's very true. Um, particularly the method that I worked in because the. Um, if you look at like Disney animation art, especially the classic stuff,
1: mm-hmm.
2: the the outlines that um, are very um, thick and thin, um, and generally done with a brush, so you get you get these very graceful lines that taper off at the ends, and you know it's it's more like. Kind of like comic book inking Mm -hmm. or, Or what we think of as Traditional comic book inking Um With The Simpsons And with a lot of TV animation It's what we call a deadline Which is Different from a deadline Which is You know Um the amount of time that you have to get a job done but uh, this is two words deadline right. and it's it's basically a line that is the same consistency, consistency throughout so um, generally I was using technical illustration pens to do all my inking for those because it re- didn't require a brush, it required a line that was just very mechanical and consistent
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> now um The first thing I knew you ever did was the Little Mermaid poster. I didn't know it was you, but I know about it. Uh, I think you told me when I met you at some point. So what led from the technical illustration to doing movie posters? Was that a natural thing, or were you doing it concurrently, or how would that work?
2: Well, I I did that for two years, the technical stuff in Mm -hmm. Detroit. And all that time, I really wanted to do... You know, my, my uh, ambition was to go to California and get work doing movie posters and album covers and greeting cards and all that fun stuff that um, was being done out in Los Angeles. So I was working on my portfolio uh, evenings and weekends to try to attain that goal. Um, so I, I was just doing sample pieces on my own time of... Um, you know, things that look like they might be an album cover or might be a movie poster for whatever the current movie was. I remember doing one for Popeye,
1: um,
2: <laughs> you, know, and it's, you know, not as a real job, obviously, just okay. just for myself and for my portfolio. OK. Um, and that's the kind of stuff when I was finally ready two years later after I got out of school. When I was ready to go out to Los Angeles and show my portfolio around, that's the kind of stuff I had in it. I had, you know, just pieces that I'd sort of done on my own that were designed to get me the sort of work that was being done in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's what I did. And um, I ended up landing a job at an advertising agency called BD Fox and Friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, the owner was Brian Fox. He's the BD and BD Fox, and um, it was sort of a boutique ad agency that catered just to the entertainment industry. So I was uh, hired as a, an in-house illustrator, and I did everything from um, photo retouching to uh, thumbnail sketches for ideas for posters.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, comps, and then all the way up to finished illustrations, uh, mainly on the real low-budget jobs, because I was young and new. <laughs>
1: um,
2: the, uh, Brian realized that he could save money by having me do uh, the low-budget stuff rather than hiring an established illustrator, uh, freelance illustrator. So I got to do a lot of things, you know, like teenage sex comedies and um, you know, really schlocky horror movies. Um, the kind of stuff that back then you'd see at the drive-in. Um, and then as you know, as video tapes became popular it, um, and drive-ins were phased out, it was the kind of stuff that you would... Uh, see what we call direct to video mm. um, yeah. so a lot of movies that you know wouldn't get a theatrical release but they would get a direct to video release and I did a few uh, bigger ones I did um, one for the movie house mm. which starred William William Cat I did the poster for that um, I did a number of foreign films uh, there was one called choose me and one called the hit mm. that I remember and the inheritors you know those are not Names anyone's going to recognize, but if you look them up, you, you'll see they were kind of a very photorealistic airbrush renderings.
0: Okay. Yeah. So it doesn't look um, like so anyway, the Simpsons stuff. <laughs> yeah. So
2: so so that's how I got started in Los Angeles, and it was while I was there that I met Matt the hmm. um, and this was prior to the Simpsons starting. Mm-hmm. And Matt was hired by the company. To write copy for a lot of the movie posters that we were putting out.
1: Oh wow! <laughs> yeah,
2: and so I met him. I met him that way, and uh, we actually are our first collaboration officially. Not that we really worked together on it, but um, I did the painting for a horror movie called Blood Diner.
1: <laughs> okay,
2: and and it was actually Matt's. Uh, tagline that they used on the poster so if you, if you see a copy of the poster, it's got my artwork uh, it's, it's a painting of a uh, a diner out in the middle of nowhere with a big neon sign that says Blood Diner and uh, the sign has like a hand with a big butcher knife
1: um,
2: <laughs> and and Matt's tagline or his copy line was first they meet you, then they want to eat you <laughs> or something to that effect.
0: (laughs) Were the meaty, reheated meaty treats, no. (laughs) 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 Um, So at that time, he was doing Life in Hell, right? The comic strip panel, whatever? Yeah,
2: yeah, he was doing Life in Hell, and uh, he was friends with one of the art directors at the studio or at the agency, and um, she used to... Every so often, if Matt was working on a life and house trip and sort of needed um, information, uh, you know, kind of background information, she would pull the the um, staff there.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, one of the ones I remember was he was doing a life and house trip about childhood songs. You know, songs we used to sing
1: <laughs> as kids.
2: You know, where he would change the words. It was sung to the tune of, um, you know, uh, I don't know.
0: Well, it's, well, like anything, like sing along with Mad or anything Weird Al does. That yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> uh, one that I remember was um, Popeye the Sailor Man. <laughs> you know, because kids had different versions of um, of the Popeye theme song, right? And one of them was uh, "I'm Popeye the Sailor Man." I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. Oh no, it was "I'm Popeye the Sailor Man." I live in a garbage can. I eat all the worms and spit out the germs. I papa the sailor man.
1: Right. <laughs>
2: and uh, so he was doing a strip like that, and so he, you know, uh, he would call and and ask his friend Millie to uh, pull the studio and see if anybody could remember songs that we had sung when we were kids, and and then you know a week later we saw it in print in Life and Hell. <laughs> You know, he would do that, um, not very often, but a couple of times. Uh, and then he also, we had, um, uh, Brian Fox's wife had a greeting card company, um, and she ran it kind of at, in a small office space at the back of the agency. And Matt used to write copy for a lot of those greeting cards as well. And I did some of the, some of the illustrations and some were photo. Um, cards and they were really low budget so we used to just use people in the studio um, as the models for the cards <laughs> so there are a couple of greeting cards out there, there's a series called Junk Mail that feature me and uh, Matt and Billy Billy <laughs> Smith, who was the art director who was Matt's friend um, and other people in the studio <laughs> so uh you know, any Matt Greening fans out there, if you're looking for, you know, the really rare Matt Graining collectible, that's
0: probably it. <laughs> wow. Never even heard of that. <laughs> now, were you involved with him uh, on Simpsons way back in the beginning, like when Tracy Ullman went on the air and at that early stage, no, or was that um, later?
2: <laughs> yeah, no. My first involvement was, I had already left B.D. Fox, and I was working for... David Willardson who was um, as I mentioned previously he was one of my illustration heroes and uh, David had a studio in Glendale and I went to work for him and Millie had also moved on uh, to another studio so it was probably well I guess it would have been early 1990 uh, the the Simpsons half hour series had been on the air for maybe only a month
1: Mm,
2: and I got a call from Millie and she said uh You know, I don't know if you've seen The Simpsons, Matt Groening's new show. And, uh, you know, the show was new enough that you could actually say, I don't know if you've heard of it, but.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um,
2: So she actually said, I don't know if you've heard of it. And And I said, Oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen it. It's great. And, you know, tell Matt, congratulations. And she said, Well, he's put me in charge of all the merchandise. I'm doing approvals for Fox as Matt's liaison and we're looking for artists to to just do artwork for T shirts and bed sheets and all the that stuff that's coming out. And so she recruited me as an artist. Um and I did that for about six months before Fox hired me to work in house and just do nothing but uh Simpsons art. Oh, wow. And it was and it was kind of at that point that um because matt was doing his own publishing projects i was also recruited to work on some of the early simpsons books and calendars and so forth
0: were you pretty much the only artist or did they have a team of different artists
2: for the merchandise uh, there was me and about three other people okay and they put me in charge uh, when fox hired me They put me in charge of the other three artists, and and they were all employees of Klasky Chupo, who was doing the animation at the time. Mm -hmm. And so three days a week, I would work over at Klasky Chupo and um, oversee those other artists and also do artwork myself. And then the other two days, I was learning Millie's job because there was so much uh, merchandise being generated that Millie didn't have the time to do approvals on everything so they needed somebody else to help her out. <laughs> uh, so I was I was kind of splitting my time between um, following her around and learning her job and then overseeing the other artists on the merchandise art.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you remember what like the weirdest piece of merchandise you had to draw something for?
2: <laughs> oh boy, no one's ever asked me that. Let me think. Uh... <laughs> Uh, nothing jumps out at me. I can't really think of anything okay. that was <laughs> weird. But, you know, the only thing that jumps out when you say weird was Bart's House of Weirdness was a video game that I did the
0: illustration for
2: a <laughs> cover illustration. Yeah. and that that had a lot of weird imagery. But um, no, I, you know, in general, part of the job uh, that I was learning, part of Millie's job, was to kind of get inside Matt's head yeah. and and sort of be able to know what he would like and what he wouldn't like
1: mm-hmm.
2: in terms in terms of merchandise. So a lot of a lot of people would pitch things. Yeah. A lot a lot of companies would pitch things and you know, Millie would just say, No, you know, we're not gonna do something that's, you know, promoting guns or
0: Yeah, I was gonna say what do you remember anything that was rejected out of hand <laughs> out of hand?
2: Yeah, anything that was um I remember anything that was like promoting guns or um, you know, militaristic I remember at one point Well, this wasn't really a Simpsons But in one of the comic books um, We had the The Army wanted to run an, a, a Recruiting ad
1: mm-hmm.
2: And we, we said no to that Just because, well, you know, we had a lot of kids Who read the comics And, you know We just didn't really want Kids getting the message that The Simpsons, you know, was sort of Promoting joining the Army Yeah not that there's anything wrong with joining the army. Um, it's just that you know, in a kids' magazine, it didn't seem appropriate.
0: Yeah, especially since you can't enlist as a kid. So, yeah. <laughs> right. Um,
2: I, I do remember that Butterfinger when they you know there used to be a big Simpsons campaign. Don't lay a finger on my Butterfinger.
1: Mm-hmm. And that campaign was a little controversial because. Um, some of the early
2: ads and commercials, they had Bart actually holding a Butterfinger bar,
1: hmm.
2: um, and and it was contractually possible for him to do that, you know, because uh, I don't I don't know what it said in the contract, but apparently it was allowed. And Matt really hated that because he said, you know, what the Simpsons, it's okay for them to advertise products, but I don't want them ever to be holding the product. Hmm. Or actually referring to the product (laughs) So the fact that that Bart says don't lay a finger on my Butterfinger Was probably one of the Only times That that was allowed That he was allowed to mention the product And also hold it in his hand (laughs) Um, After that All the deals that they made The Simpsons could be um, For example like You know in a Toyota ad Mm
1: -hmm. Um
2: they could be pictured in the Toyota or in the, in the ad, um, you know, they wouldn't be actually driving the car. Right. And, you know, you wouldn't have Homer saying, um, you know, Toyotas are the best car ever made. Right. Um, uh, they wouldn't be like doing a, a, a specific endorsement.
0: Right. So it, it could be any sort of shtick as it were. And then just some announcer would say the tag, buy a Toyota or whatever. <laughs>
2: Yeah, the announcer could say anything, yeah, um, pretty much, um, but but it was very limited as to what the characters could actually say.
0: Right. So no no Winston cigarettes, huh?
2: <laughs> no, yeah, no cigarette ads. <laughs> uh, no beer, no alcohol ads. Um, we did a milk ad once. We did a cotton milk ad. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that's a good example. You know, it shows. Um, you know, the closest they got, I think, to showing um, the character with milk was um, Bart and Lisa had the milk mustache.
0: Right, right.
2: But but they're not actually saying anything about drinking milk.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, um, you just did artwork for merchandise and the comics and everything else. You never actually did physical animation or did you or any storyboards or anything for the shows or anything over the years
2: I never did uh, storyboards um, I did some work for the TV show Uncredited hmm. um, because because of the fact that I work for Matt and he was in the office every day um, occasionally there would be a design that wasn't working um, you know a design that came from the animation studio and he would come in and say hey you know Bill I think you might be uh, a good person to tackle this can you can you take a shot at you know designing this character or um, creating a poster I remember a couple of times I did fake comic covers
1: mm-hmm.
2: for, for scenes in the androids dungeon comic shop <laughs> and I, I did one one in particular was um, it was an itchy and scratchy spinoff comic or like a crossover with Archie <laughs> and and it was called Itchy and Veronica.
1: <laughs>
2: and the cover had Itchy and Veronica sharing a soda out of Archie's severed head.
1: Oh <laughs> I think I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> um
2: Yeah, so every so often I would do something. It was always uncredited. I did a little work on the Simpsons movie, some design work mm-hmm. um, But I was the art director on the Futurama series So um, when, when that came along I helped Matt out with early character designs And then once he pitched the show to Fox And they bought it um, I was brought on as art director
0: oh, for the show okay. Now, uh, forgive me, I don't remember the name of it, but Matt Groening has a a newer show, and I've only seen like one episode set in like the Middle Ages or something. Are you helping him out on that, or are you just kind of not involved anymore?
2: No, I did. Um, that's, uh, Disenchantment. Disenchantment, thank you. For some reason
0: it escaped my mind.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, it's on Netflix. Um, yeah, maybe not as uh, widely seen as Futurama because of the fact that it's streaming, but, um, um, Really, really good show Really fun I worked on the early uh, Character designs And for the first season I was um, An artist And consultant On it Mm
0: -hmm. And on any of these shows Do you ever create any characters Or just do the character design?
2: Um, Mainly character design But um, Like for Radioactive Man When we did the comic book um, I had a hand in creating Some of those characters Mm Mm-hmm um, none of those really Translated back into the TV show Yeah You know, we, we were sort of taking the concept Of Radioactive Man from the show And then fleshing out His universe of villains And sidekicks And, uh, you know The people in, the, in his Personal life, all that it Basically his cast of characters But um, Every so often, things that we would do In the comics Would Kind of show up On the On the TV show Like one of the things I did for Radioactive Man When we um, Started doing the comic book Was I gave him these Sort of ear covers On his On his head On his cowl Mm -hmm. Um, So originally There was nothing there Like no ear sticking out No bump You know where his ear would be (laughs) And I just gave him These oval Kind of cups That you know Were sort of like Ear pieces and uh, eventually, when they started drawing him on the show, they drew him with those
1: ear pieces. <laughs> well, so
2: cool. I thought that was kind of cool. You, mm-hmm. know, was, you know, some of the stuff we did made it back onto the show.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, let's see. So I know you said you're doing merchandise, and then uh, the earliest Simpsons stuff was through was it Welsh Publishing? Was that the the publisher?
2: Yes, we yeah. did a magazine yeah. called Simpsons Illustrated with Welsh, and it was. Uh, um, you know, just a basic fan magazine. It had articles and game pages, and uh, you know, had a comic section. And that's actually how I started as a writer because the first issue of Simpsons Illustrated, um, I was assigned to draw this Krusty the Clown comic strip. So the first issue just had one page of comics, and I think I think the Krusty strip shared the page with. I think it was Hey Arnold, <laughs> um, which ended up becoming a TV show, but at the time it was just a comic strip. Right. Um, and uh, anyway, it, it was the first time I actually had gotten to draw a comic and fulfill that uh, childhood dream of being a comic artist. Mm. And I was thrilled to do it. You know, it was just a lot of fun. And I called Steve Vance, who was the editor. And I said, hey, Steve, you know, I know we're working on the second issue, and I don't know what the plans are for comics, but I really had a blast doing that Krusty strip, and I would love to, you know, do more, so please keep me in mind. And Steve said, well, uh, you know, we're kind of behind schedule on the second issue, and we don't actually have anything written. <laughs> for um, comic strip wise, so if you'd like to write something, then you can also draw it. Oh, cool! And I said, uh, "Oh, okay, well that would be great." And I hung up the phone, and I was just like, "Oh my God, where did I just commit to? I've never written anything. <laughs> you know? How am I going to do this?"
1: <laughs>
2: um, so I started, you know, trying to figure out. Well, how do I come up with a story idea? What do I, you know? what do I do? What's next? So I started thinking about things that I did as a kid, you know, just kind of funny stories from childhood. Mm -hmm. And I came up with one that, you know, I figured, oh, I could, you know, turn myself into Bart Simpson and, you know, turn my family into the Simpsons family. And, um, you know, that would make a good story. I think the first one I wrote was Actually, the first one I wrote was about Bart getting a job at the Quickie Mart. (laughs) And uh, then the second one, I think, was the Simpsons get a a Lazy Susan for their uh, dinner table.
0: (laughs) I kind of remember that one.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and, and that was something that happened to me as a kid because my dad actually made a lazy Susan. He'd seen one in a store and thought, well, I'm not going to pay 20 bucks or whatever it was. I can make that. So he made one (laughs) and we used to, you know, we had like a big round circular table with this thing, this turntable in the center. And if there was ever anything that my mom made that we didn't like, that was kind of smelly, like sauerkraut or, (laughs)
1: um,
2: I remember sauerkraut was the big thing. It was like, uh, I can't stand to have that in front of me. I just hate that smell. (laughs) So if the turntable came around and the sauerkraut was sitting in front of me, I would spin it back so it was in front of my sister. (laughs) And sometimes we got into these fights where we're both spinning the table around back and forth to keep the smelly stuff (laughs) from being in front of us. And um, so anyway, that's what I wrote about in this one strip. And I have Bart and Lisa struggling over. The turntable, and then Bart decides to let go, and it goes spinning around, and then all the food ends up on Homer. Yes,
0: I remember that.
2: Now, so that was Welsh, and and um, we did we did a uh, an annual at the end of the first year, mm-hmm. and it was a three D issue. So we had everything in the magazine printed in three D, and it came with three D glasses. And, and it was, you know, very cool. And when we were in the second year of the magazine, um, Steve and Matt were trying to figure out, well, what do we do for the annual? You know, let's do something fun again, something different. And by then, we were doing several pages in the magazine of comics, and that was kind of the thing that we were having the most fun with. And uh, somebody, either Matt or Steve, said, "Well, why don't we just do a comic book?" Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, so we did, and so that second annual was actually simpsons comics and stories
1: right <laughs> and
2: we did it comic book size you know we didn't call it simpsons illustrated we just called it simpsons comics and stories and that came out and uh, it was such a big hit that that was what gave matt the um kind of the courage to start bongo
0: mm-hmm.
2: You know, it sold so well that he thought well it looks like there's an appetite out there for simpsons comics so let's let's make this a regular thing.
0: Now, was that his original intention to start his own company, Bongo, or just to continue with Welsh or possibly attached to another publisher?
2: Well, I think he was... I know he was getting a lot of offers from uh, the big comic book companies to, to do Simpsons comics.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: I remember in particular, Marvel wanted to do um, a Simpsons series. And I, I assume they all reached out to Fox, and then Fox sort of redirected them to Matt and said, No, you gotta to talk to Matt Granny, he owns the publishing rights. <laughs> so so all these offers were coming in and Matt was just basically rejecting them because I think in the back of his mind he thought I might want to start a company. I don't know if I am ready to do that yet, but I don't wanna have the rights tied up with another company if mm-hmm. if I change my mind. So I think once the Simpsons Comics and Stories came out and, and sold so well that was what sort of uh, made the decision for him. Okay. Uh, but but prior to that, I think he was just kind of going along, making you know deals with various publishers, um, you know, kind of randomly.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, let's see. I guess you could just say the rest is history. But uh, he did. You guys eventually did. Now, were you the original editor on those uh, Bongo books, or was that later? I don't remember.
2: No, Steve Vance was the original editor I was um, I was at the beginning uh, uh, Art director Oh, okay So, um, when we first started Bongo It was Steve as editor um, I don't remember what Cindy Vance's official title was But um, <laughs> she might have been co-editor But she also did all the coloring and lettering mm-hmm. And I was art director So I was Um by that time I was writing stories. Um, I was drawing stories as much as I had time to to do, and I was drawing covers. Usually, Steve would do the layouts for the covers.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I think on most of the first year, Steve did the layouts. I might have done I might have done the complete uh, cover from layout to finish on number six because that was one that I also wrote the main story um but uh but generally i was I was just sort of doing whatever needed to be done. I was overseeing a couple of other artists that we had, mm. a couple of freelancers, um you know doing art corrections um you know anything that needed to be done art wise i was I was pitching in and doing then um after the first year, Steve and Cindy. Uh, decided to resign
1: mm-hmm.
2: and I was told that I would be the new editor okay. You're um, told.
1: Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs>
2: so at that point I was editor and art director mm-hmm. uh, and I ended up coming up with the title creative director just because it was easier than saying I'm editor and art director
1: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> um, so I was at that point from that point on until so we started I think it was around 2012 we started doing the Simpsons apps and that was when I stepped down as creative director to work on those and then also uh, started doing early work on Disenchantment at that time
0: got it now um, while you were the editor um you know, obviously, you start a lot of titles. Uh, where, you know, you mentioned Radioactive Man, and then there's a lot of one-shot titles, and then you got your own series, Roswell. Was that just because, hey, I'm in charge, I can put my own comic, or uh, w- were you encouraged to do that, or both? <laughs> um,
2: I was encouraged by Matt. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, and that was yeah, it wasn't wasn't a thing that I had really thought about doing,
1: mm-hmm.
2: although. At the time, in the early 90s, there were a lot of indie comic creators that were kind of making it big, you know, people like Jeff Smith and uh, Mike Allred and um, people I admired who were doing their own comics. But I, you know, I don't think I I thought about really trying to come up with my own until Matt basically said, look, you know, we've got this great comic book company and he, I mean, he told not just me, but a few others. He said, if you guys have an idea for a comic, um, please let me know, because if it seems like something that's right for Bongo and it's good, then uh, we can publish it. So I remember letting like a year go by, and uh, but in the back of my mind, I, I just kept thinking, i got to come up with something, because this is a really good opportunity. I mean, it's very generous of Matt to you know just let us um publish with him and i've i've got to have got to come up with something good <laughs> and i was i was just you know constantly just sort of scrapping for an idea and i happened to be reading a book on the Roswell UFO incident <laughs> this, is, um, this is prior to things like the x files and uh 1997 when Runs had his uh, anniversary it and be more uh, common knowledge in the public. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was, you know, it was one of those things that not a lot of people knew about, but I was reading this because I had an interest in that kind of thing. And I remember reading in the book something about an eyewitness who um, recalled seeing a live alien that uh, survived this crash, now I've seen this alien alien in the back of a truck being shipped off to the army hospital, mm-hmm. and I thought, oh that's kind of a an interesting idea. like what if an alien survived that crash?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: First of all, what if that crash you know actually happened
1: right.
2: there were really alien bodies recovered, but what if one survived and he's trapped on earth and you know, what would his life be like? Right. And obviously, you know, because Bongo's a humor company, I started thinking, well, what's, you know, kind of a humorous take on that. And that was the beginning of Roswell. I just started coming yeah. up with, um, these characters and they were all kind of based on things that I like to draw. Yeah. Um, and, and I love the forties and the early fifties. I love that era just in terms of, you know, everything, cars, fashion, right. um, Architecture, everything. <laughs> um, so I just kind of started incorporating all of that kind of stuff into it. You know, I, I used to love those. You'd see those old postcards that were, um, you know, greetings from Texas, and they'd show a cowboy on a giant jackrabbit. Everything's
1: big right. in Texas. <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> and I thought, that's a great character. I'll, you know, come up with this cowboy who rides the big, atomically mutated giant jackrabbit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so. <laughs> Um, that was how that started, and I picked Matt, and he liked it, and, uh, so, you know, I started doing that in my spare time, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and, uh, then Futurama came along, and, uh, kind of put an end to it.
0: Okay. I was kind of thinking, you know, what happened with that? Um, you did, Roswell's design's kind of loosely based on, like, the Warren Kramer, you know, Harvey Comics design, you know, for Casper and Richie Rich. Was that intentional, or... (laughs) Well, that was uh,
2: definitely an early influence of mine. Okay. Um, you know, I had a period growing up where I was reading a lot of Casper and Richie Rich and Hot Stuff, Stumbo, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I read all, that, all those Harvey books. And, um, but also just, I think, um, Tex Avery comics or Tex Avery cartoons Mm -hmm. Uh, Warner Brothers cartoons there's a lot of uh, old comic books that uh, influence me and and kind of show up in Roswell Mm
1: -hmm.
2: or you know the influence shows up um so I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it all on Harvey Comics, but yeah, definitely yeah. there was a lot of Harvey influence
0: there. Well, it's certainly what attracted me to it, of course. But, uh, and you know, by that point, I was always already liking your work from on Simpsons anyway, so I, I picked it up. Oh,
2: thank you. Well, I, I only wish I could draw as well as Warren Kremer. I'll tell you
0: that. Anybody wishes that. Yeah. Um. Now, uh, did do you think Roswell had any sort of inspiration for Futurama since you're saying that you kind of stopped doing that in favor of Futurama or was it just a happy accident?
2: I think it was a happy accident. Um, I didn't realize at the time that I was coming up with Roswell that Matt was also thinking about his next show and, um, wanted it to be a science fiction show. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember at one point going into his office and he had this box of, uh, just books and videotapes that he had rented of um, sci-fi movies and you know classic sci-fi paperbacks and that kind of thing um, so I know he was just starting to kind of research and figure out what he wanted this show to be mm-hmm. um, but then you know when when I finally got my act together and got Roswell done um, I guess that, was, that would have been 90 like late ninety six early ninety seven I think
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, by that time, Matt was um you know concurrently already in the early planning stages of Futurama um, so I did you know the six issues that I did of Roswell, and at one point, probably in i don't know I guess maybe late ninety seven or sometime in ninety eight
1: mm-hmm. Matt
2: started borrowing me away from Bongo he had a studio a couple of blocks away from the Bongo
1: offices
2: (laughs) and he would borrow me a couple of days a week to just um, help him sort of visualize what Futurama would look like so he would give me like a paragraph or a couple of sentences about a character and he would say you know the the paragraph would say something like um Leela female um alien originally she was an alien uh, not a not a mutant um knows martial arts um you know has one eye uh, you yeah, know, so it would just be like the basics that he figured out about what Leela's all about. And so then I would do a bunch of sketches And, you know, the sketches The early sketches were weird You know, because some of them she's got Fangs and a tail (laughs) And, uh Some of them she's wearing kind of Like, uh, traditional martial arts uh, Garb, you know Like,
1: (laughs) like,
2: um Like a belted kimono Kind of thing (laughs) And, uh But what Matt would do is he would look at my drawing and he'd go, oh, man, that's not really right. I like this part, you know. So then he would do a sketch and it would maybe incorporate the one thing about mine that he liked. Um, And then he would hand it back to me and say, you know, try something more like this. And then I would do a more refined drawing of what he had drawn. And then it would, you know, there'd be a little back and forth. And then finally we would end up with what the character... Uh, ultimately look like. Oh, sure. And we did that for Leela, Bender, Fry. Uh, Fry was bald at one point. <laughs> and, and it was actually Fry that had... I have this one drawing of Fry where he's the one with the antenna sticking out of his head. <laughs> and I don't remember what that was about. I don't know if that was just an idea I had or if that was um, something Matt came up with. But, um, yeah, I remember Zoidberg was really a lot creepier and scarier looking um <laughs> uh, veiny I remember he had like these veins running through his head oh wow <laughs> uh yeah so anyway um like I said Matt would uh, kind of steal me away from Bongo a couple days a week or in the evenings or weekends or whatever and then finally we put together these presentation boards and he did his pitch to Fox and uh, sold the show to them mm-hmm. And um, then they hired Rough Draft to do the animation And so for a period of time I wasn't really involved But um, once Fox set him up In this office uh, Production office um, He requested That they be given enough he, That he be given enough space So that Bongo could be in the same building with the Futurama production
1: offices. Mm
2: -hmm. Um, So at that point we moved, and um, so I was basically on the the same floor with um, all the writers and the casting agents and Matt and everybody who was working on the show. So they were working on the, the pilot, and one of the producers kept coming down to my office because he knew that I had done all this preliminary stuff with Matt on the show. And he would say, Hey, you know, Rough Draft's having a hard time with this idea or they're too busy. Can you, you know, handle some of these designs? And so I started little by little just doing a lot of design work on that pilot episode.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> and ultimately, It got to be they were asking me to do so much that I was really doing two jobs so I was Mm -hmm. doing all the bongo work and then having to stay late and or work on the weekends to get my Futurama work done and so I went to one of the producers and I said hey don't get me wrong I love working on Futurama but um You know, I'm not really being paid by the show And I don't really have a title So Mm -hmm. I'd kind of like to Make it official You know, kind of like put a ring on it (laughs) Um, So they agreed And uh, so they made me art director And I got a separate salary um, For, you know, working on the show Um, So during that whole four year period Of the original run of the show I was, I was like working two jobs (laughs) And, uh yeah, you know, I still had all my bongo stuff that I had to get done. Yeah, and uh, and I was art director on the show, so um, wow. <laughs> that, that was a, that was a crazy time that only a, a much younger man could, could have handled.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, at this point, is something like Roswell dead and buried? Or are you considering doing new stories, or?
2: Well, um, yeah. At that point, I had to set Roswell aside. I just didn't have time for that. Um, but I'm actually working on a new Roswell story at the moment. Oh, cool. It's, um, I mean, literally, it's sitting here on my drawing board. <laughs> and, uh, and as soon as I hang up with you, I'm going back to it. <laughs> it's um, There's a, a website in the UK known as Aces Weekly. Mm-hmm. And it's run by David Lloyd, who uh, was the artist on V for Vendetta, mm. and a number of other great uh, comic books. Comic books, and he started this. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know if he originated the idea, but it's basically a, a serialized online comic. And so, every edition of the comic is seven weeks long, and each edition has seven features.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And and so, each one is uh, three pages per week for seven weeks. So you get a total of twenty-one pages per story per feature. Um, so my Roswell uh, return, uh, the resurrection of Roswell will premiere on uh, March second. Cool, uh, coming up in just a couple of weeks, <laughs> and uh, there'll be three pages a week for seven weeks, and it'll tell a complete, self-contained Roswell story. Very cool. <laughs> and and the, the the subscription is amazingly cheap. It's it's um, I don't know what the Exchange rate is at the moment, but it's like one pound per week for seven weeks, mm. um, and you get and you get seven features.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: I'm not sure I'm not sure what the other features are for this edition, but this will be the 44th edition of the online magazine. So it's been running for a number of years, mm-hmm. and um, you know if if the return of Roswell is successful, um, I'll probably end up doing more.
0: Cool all right i'll look forward to that um Thank you. uh let's see and where are we on the career here i mean i'll just suggest, say something quickly is like i noticed that bongo for a time had zongo uh if you could talk briefly about that you know did that you know fail or were you just too busy or uh what was the uh, what happened there
2: well <laughs> i think it failed it failed financially um you know basically what the idea for Zongo came because you know Matt his, his origins are as an underground cartoonist and he had a lot of friends like Gary Panter and Mary Fleener mm-hmm. and um you know people who he felt weren't getting the exposure they deserved or kind of the creative freedom so he invited his pals to to um do something that wouldn't necessarily fit the audience for Bongo
1: mm-hmm.
2: um but would fit maybe more of an adult, uh, less mainstream audience.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so I th- I think we you know we did some really fun comics, but unfortunately, um, I, I think maybe a, a company that wasn't known for doing something as mainstream as The Simpsons, yeah, um, it might have been better suited because um, you know something like Fantagraphics or. Honey Press, or you know, something that's more, um, more used to doing, um, you know, kind of underground, less mainstream comics. Right. Um, and I think, I think maybe the problem was that there wasn't really an editor as such. <laughs> um, I mean, there was a managing editor, but I, I wasn't the editor of those books. Oh, okay. Um, Matt wanted to just give them kind of Free reign creatively So I think what we ended up with Was um, I remember there was one issue where Gary Panther Just did pages from his sketchbook oh, wow. um, You know Because he didn't have time to, to get a story Done or something um, But you know if there had been an editor The editor might have said Well no let's, let's not not Do that Right now, let's you know maybe we just give you another month. We only put the the um, release date back a month and give you time to to do a story. Right. Um, but you know, kind of without those guardrails, um,
1: <laughs> you know,
2: the creators are just kind of doing their own thing. And I don't know. I I think everything Mary did was um, definitely you know something. That people wanted to read. I think with Gary's stuff, um, I mean, he's got his own audience that was that were buying the books. But I don't think he was building an audience. I don't think he was reaching out to people who weren't necessarily familiar with his stuff.
0: Right. Now you weren't at Bongo at the tail end of it, but I mean, uh, you probably knew what happened. Is uh, you know, of course, Disney bought out 20th Century Fox. Uh, is that the reason why Bongo went out of business at that point, or was it just because no. it was going to go out anyway and it was just a good time?
2: Yeah, I think Bongo was already kind of winding down. Okay. Um, you know, the sales, the domestic sales of Bongo's output were always, you know, fine, They were, but they were never
1: really stellar. Mm-hmm. Um... And a lot of the uh, success of Bongo came from some of the
2: foreign licensees. Mm-hmm. So, so we were, you know, we were making enough money here in the U.S. But the fact that you know the comics were huge in Germany at one point, you know, for several years, and they were huge in France for a few years, and in the U.K. Um, it was those deals that really kind of. Um, made Bongo super successful and very profitable mm-hmm. but over time you know if the Simpsons aren't popular in Germany as much as they were then those sales go down right um, I, I remember the books that we were doing in the UK um, their market was more uh, more of a kids market than an all ages market you know they weren't really attracting any adults it was all kids mm. and the way they were selling comics to kids, were basically in supermarkets, um, bagged up with toys attached to the covers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're basically selling kids a toy (laughs) and then they get a free comic to go along with it. Um, and so the emphasis, you know, was kind of placed more on the toys than it was on, um, the comics themselves. Um, and so those, you know, we kind of played along and, uh, you know, we, we tried to develop toys that were kind of Simpsons-centric.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you know, if, if not actually having a Simpsons logo on it, then it was something that you knew that Bart would use, like a whoopee cushion or <laughs> uh, a squirt gun or something. Yeah. Um, you know, we tried to make them make sense. And at one point, we're, we were even trying to get them to um, be something that was possibly in one of the stories. You know, like if there was a story about Bart using a whoopee cushion, that was the toy you got that month. Right. <laughs> uh, but you know those those things wax and wane. So over time, you know those went out of fashion, and uh, the sales you know started dropping. So I think it was just a matter of um, you know we could keep on doing the comics in the U.S. without the foreign uh, money coming in, but. Um, um, you know, I mean, I'm not privy to what the what kind of money Bongo was making towards the end, but I think they must have just decided you know, we're not making enough to really make it worthwhile anymore.
0: Yeah. Well, I know publishing got very erratic at the end. It was hard for me to even find copies. So I knew something was up regardless of a Disney intervened or not.
2: (laughs) No, it really had nothing at all to do with the Disney deal.
0: Yeah. Okay. It just (laughs) was like strangely timely.
2: (laughs) Yeah. It did kind of coincide, but I think, I think by the time Disney bought Fox, um, I'm pretty sure the writing was already on the wall yeah. about Simpsons comics. I think they'd been winding down for a while, yeah. um, and and talking about just going digital and not doing printed comics anymore. Right. In fact, I, I think prior to the Disney deal, I think there were some Simpsons comics that came out that were only digital. Yeah, um, and and they didn't even do a printed version at all.
0: Yeah. I believe you're correct on that <laughs> um, uh, I don't know how to transition to this But I'll just ask about it anyway Because I know it was kind of uh, Like uh, Annoying to you for the lack of a better term uh, Is that artist By the name of Cause That uh, basically plagiarized Your artwork and as making millions of dollars Oh yeah <laughs> uh, Do you know anything about that ever since that uh, Story broke out that uh, that Happened
2: I don't really know much about it In fact, um, when the story came out I wasn't even aware of it It was um, it was several months later And I think Maybe I had, I had posted My original pencil drawing Of the album cover And I think somebody sent me a link yeah. About the story that had happened Like six or eight months earlier About um, the cause piece That was based on on my art selling for, um, somewhere around $15 million.
0: Yes, that was
2: <laughs> and, and so I, yeah, so I posted about it and, um, I wasn't really upset about it. I was more, um, just sort of scratching my head, like, like how can somebody just, like, when I saw the piece, I was like, well, he's just traced my artwork <laughs> and then added X's over the eyes and then added these weird, I think, things that were originally, he had the, that clown character. Yeah. And I, and I think the things that he added were kind of like supposed to be clown hair, but they kind of look like big elephant ears on some of the characters.
1: Right, yeah.
2: Um, and, but everything else was, you know, like, verbatim taken from my artwork and I mean you can even see it was traced. I mean it's just line for line. Yeah. Um so I you know I did sound off about it a little bit, but I I wouldn't say I was angry because I I knew going in that, you know, I didn't own the rights to the artwork. Right. Um that's owned by Fox. So, it's not like he's ripping me off, really, because I've, you know, people kept saying, you oh, know, you should sue, you should get a lawyer. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, that would be nice, but, I, you know, I, I, I think because Fox owns the rights to the art, I don't see how I would have any recourse. No. You know, I mean, Fox should probably sue.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, I think they would have a good case. Yeah. But I really don't. I really don't think I would have any part in that. <laughs> um, so, so I was, I was just more like um, amused, and yeah. I was just, you know, there was just a sense of how can somebody do that? Like yeah. that, that just seems amazing that somebody can just trace off a famous piece of art and then make millions and millions of dollars off of it. Right. I mean, I, I've been aware of the Liechtenstein issue for years, right? Um, and I kind of felt like. Uh, well, now I'm kind of in that club, you know, yeah. <laughs> with those, those guys like John Romini and Russ Heath and mm-hmm. um, all those great comic artists who were ripped off by Roy Lichtenstein.
0: Yeah. Well, for me, I, as, you know, just a, a viewer, an outsider on it, you know, it just... I was just astonished, it's like, to just... You know, to do that just as your career you know is just to take somebody else's art and just make it your own but the second part that's astonishing is it's not that he could sell it for that much is that somebody's willing to buy it for that much i mean i would rather buy your artwork for 15 million dollars to tell you the (laughs) truth i'm not going to sorry but you know it's like you know what i mean (laughs) Uh, understood yeah (laughs) It's like, I don't get the, the appeal of having the X's over the eyes and the other little adornments that he has on his things. And he's done it for other characters. It's not just Simpsons. And it's like, yeah, I don't get it. <laughs> so,
2: Well, I th- I think what it is, is, um, you know, I mean, he t- he did at one point, or maybe he still does, um, original work. I mean, he did that clown character. Yeah. Which is, you know, it's got elements of Mickey Mouse with the shorts, with the big buttons and the, the big white Mickey Mouse gloves yeah. um, but I wouldn't say he's ripping off Mickey Mouse because it's a completely different character right? Um, and I think when an artist kind of starts to get a following and then something sells for $1,000 and then the next thing you know comes out and he's got a bigger following and and it sells for 5000 and it goes up and up and up <laughs> and I'd actually read that the um uh, that sale in twenty nineteen of uh the uh yellow album painting. That was originally like Sotheby's I think was the auction house and I had read that they were hoping to get a hundred thousand hmm. for that. So they were blown away when it went for almost fifteen million. <laughs> and I, I think what happens is, as the value of an artist's work kind of escalates, at some point people don't really care what they do, even if it's derivative or copying another artist's work. Yeah. All, they're, all they're looking at is the investment value.
1: Yeah.
2: So <laughs> it, if something sells for fifteen million. Then the next time he comes out with something, it doesn't matter what it is. I mean, he, he can he can just do a line for line, um, you know, copy of a Da Vinci painting, uh, stroke for stroke, line for line, and people are going to pay twenty million because they're they're not thinking, oh, I want this on my wall, or I you know think this is brilliant. They're they're thinking, hey, his work's always going up. Um, if I pay $20 million for this in a year, it's probably going to be worth 25
0: Right. It's amazing, though. You know, it doesn't make sense to me, but then I'm not in the market for stuff like that, you know, even if it is, you know, stuff, you know, even if it was a Harvey comic, I wouldn't pay $15 million for it, so, you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, I guess everything has its audience, and it, it, there it is. You know, it just seems strange to me, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, but I, again, I think, at some point it's like it's
2: not really an audience it's more just an invest, yeah. investor
0: well an board, audience of, it, of it, uh, you know yeah of investors i guess you know that yeah of, audience yeah. of investors yeah. is really it yeah <laughs> um so well, let's see a couple more things i want to talk about before we go is like um you know one of the things you worked on and uh, you graciously uh let me use some of the artwork for my Beatles book uh, was the Yellow Submarine Project and then it finally got published. What what was the genesis of that and why was it rejected and why was it subsequently published?
2: Well, it was never rejected. Oh, okay. Um, I was was, um, commissioned by Dark Horse to do a 48 page adaptation and um, so I did I got started on it, and I I did uh, 25 pages and a cover uh, before being told that I should stop because the deal was not going to go through. Hmm. So basically what had happened was, um, you know, the the first DVD release was coming out in uh, 1999, I think, of Yellow Submarine. So it was kind of commemorating the 30th anniversary
1: Mm
2: -hmm. of the film. And so Dark Horse wanted to do this adaptation, and they they were talking to Apple, and Apple, um, I I think I'm just guessing at this, but I'm I'm thinking Dark Horse must have just had kind of a handshake deal, Mm -hmm. because um, what I was told was that that the deal fell through, Mm. and so I I shouldn't do any more. And you know they paid me for the work I did, but you know don't do any more work because it's not going to happen. Um another story I heard was that because George Harrison's company was also called Dark Horse <laughs> he was a little bit alarmed that if this thing came out by a company also called Dark Horse and it wasn't any good that it would reflect badly on his company right like people people would assume that he was putting it out and he didn't have any control over it so he had no idea if it was going to be good or not so, um, maybe one of those stories is true. Maybe both are true. I really don't know. Mm, okay. Um, but I do know that nobody other than the people at dark horse ever saw, um, my artwork. It was never, it never got to the point where it was sent to Apple for approval or anything like that. Um, so anyway, for years and years, it was just a disappointment, um, And then at one point, I probably showed it on Facebook or something, showed some of the pages, and that might have been where you saw it for the first time. Yeah. Um, and then I allowed you to use it for for your book, and I just assumed, you know, that these pages were never going to be published as a book, so why not, you know, get them out there and let them be seen by people just for what they are. Right. Um, so years and years later, of course, um it's it's about to be the 50th anniversary of the film and i was i was having dinner with a friend of mine who's um with a publisher i won't say the name of the publisher but he was he had seen the pages and was very interested in um having his company do the book like allowing me to um to basically complete the job that I had started 20 years earlier,
1: hmm.
2: and um, so we, you know, I was talking to him about it. He was talking to Apple, and uh, I was ultimately at Comic Con introduced to the guy who is the North American licensing agent for the Beatles. So he's the one that makes all the deals for any Beatle merchandise in in North America. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was introduced to him. He really liked the the pages, and um, started um, negotiations with this publisher to to uh, to have me complete it. Um, that ended up falling through. <laughs> um, wow. He didn't he didn't make a deal with this publisher, but I got a phone call from him, and he said, um, "Would you be adverse?" to doing this with a different publisher um, because I really like what you did on the those 25 pages and I, I'd love to see you complete it as a, as a much bigger book like maybe a, a 96 page or or bigger book so uh, I said yeah I would I would love to um, he asked me you know like what publishers do you think you would like to work with I mentioned dark horse I said you yeah, know I'd love to actually finished this with the company that that I started it with
1: Hmm.
2: Um, so they were talking about um, doing it with Dark Horse Um, there were a few other publishers I mentioned uh, one being Bongo um, another being DC and uh, you know but I didn't know it wasn't in my hands I just said well I've worked with people at all these other companies I've worked with people at Marvel um, at IDW I'd I'd be happy Doing it with any of those companies uh, So I got A call back from him and he said how do you feel About Titan And I said uh, oh I've worked with Titan for years because they were our Licensee on the Simpsons and Futurama Comics
1: and mm-hmm.
2: I know Those people really well I'd love to work with them And he said uh, Well that's great because the Titan is already doing Beatles Toys they're doing these final Yellow submarine toys And uh you know, comics is their you know, the thing they started with, so it just makes total sense to let them have the license and yeah. and let uh, let you finish the job with them. So that's what we did. I started working with Titan, and um, they wanted it to be a ninety six page book, hardcover, mm-hmm. and uh, so I I completed that in twenty eighteen, and, and it came out in the summer. <laughs> And now I've just completed
1: a um, an expanded version. Hmm. Uh,
2: so that I'm not sure exactly when the release date for that is. Um, probably sometime this year. But um, I think I added like an extra 20 pages and a bunch of pinups and oh, wow. um, some other good stuff.
0: Is that also through Titan? Then oh. it's just an expanded version. Is a that's that's through Titan. Okay. Yeah. Now I never realized you didn't finish it. I, I don't think you made that clear when we originally spoke about it. I just thought you did complete it, at least the original version, and it sat on the shelf. But you didn't even complete it. So was that hard to pick up where you left off, or?
2: <laughs> it it kind of was. It's really weird because those original twenty five pages, um, I, I I decided kind of early on that. You know, after I accepted the job, I thought, "Well, I'm a I'm a big fan of the Beatles and a big fan of this film, and I wouldn't really want a comic book version of it if it's just you know panel after panel of the thing that I love, but without music and without animation. Mm-hmm. Like, like it just seemed like I would be creating an inferior version of something great." And I thought I don't want to be the guy that just does you know the silent version of Yellow Submarine that doesn't have any animation. Like that's weird. <laughs> um, so I thought you know how can I do this in a way that you know kind of adds to it. You know it kind of does something that the animated film couldn't do. And so I started thinking about uh, psychedelic poster art and graphic design from the '60s and you know just the things that turned me on about that period art-wise mm-hmm. um you know graphic art-wise not so much animation and um so i started designing all these pages um to sort of look like psychedelic blacklight posters
1: mm-hmm.
2: as much as i could and i still had to tell a story but um you know, once I did that, I, I got excited about it. And uh, anyway, I did those 25 pages. And when I picked up, hold on a second. Mm-hmm. I've, got a, I've got a barking dog here. <laughs> Ripley, hush. <laughs>
0: I'm
2: on the phone. I'm on a podcast.
0: <laughs> I had to put the dog here in the other room, and then, and then your dog pops up. <laughs> oh, That's okay. I'm sorry. <laughs>
2: Yeah, she's she's hearing somebody hit a tuning fork six miles away, and uh, who knows who knows what she's barking at. Anyway, um, when I when I started, um, you know, the finished version with Titan, I looked at those original twenty five pages, and i I just thought, you know, creatively and design wise, these are really good. I mean, that's to toot my own horn, but mm-hmm. you know, as a as an artist, I'm trying to decipher and like remember like the headspace I was in that allowed me to do these pages because mm-hmm. um, I, I I I mean I was almost viewing them like they'd been done by another artist because I thought I don't know if I can I don't know if I have it in me to match this again. Uh, so it did take me a while to kind of get into that. Um, creative headspace and be able to come up with, you know, many, many, many more pages um, (laughs) that look like they were part of those original 25.
0: Hmm. Well, I think you pulled it off because, like I said, I didn't realize you had done pages years later, so I'm going to have to look at the book again. So... (laughs) uh, so that's amazing to me, and then now you're doing more. So you know, I'll have to get that edition, of course. You know, <laughs> um, So I guess my final question before we go, and we ta- we talked briefly before we started recording, and I understand the sensitivity of it, but I have to ask about the Mad Magazine situation. I mean, you were all hired on to become the new editor when they moved to Los Angeles, and then a year later, uh, you were no longer the editor. So. What can you tell me about that situation without <laughs> stepping on all any can, fingers or anything like that? <laughs> all,
2: all I can tell you is um, uh, I
0: love DC Comics.
2: I love the people there. Um, and, you know, I don't want to say anything bad about anybody at DC.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you know, it was very, it was painful um, losing that job, and it was, um, it's, you know, it's still difficult to think about it. Mm-hmm. I think because of the fact that. We were, we were doing really good work. Um, the subscription numbers were actually up from when I started,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, and that may be because everybody wanted that little mini tiki mug that we offered <laughs> the subscriptions. Um, right. But, um, you know, I feel the seven, seven issues that I did, I feel really good about. Um, I, think, I think they would have, all of us, everybody on the team that I hired, I think we would have gotten much better. Mm-hmm. Hold on. Are you gonna? I hope you're gonna edit this.
0: I can edit this part. Yes. <laughs> go ahead. I gotta,
2: I gotta do something about this dog. <laughs> I gotta put a put a bone in her mouth or something.
0: <laughs> um, Although this is kind of funny. No, I'll let it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll
2: leave it to you to keep in as much of this as you want. Yeah. All right, there. Chew on that.
0: Okay. All right, back to Matt. <laughs>
2: um. I feel I feel good about the seven issues that we did, and um, you know we were experimenting. We basically had a mandate to, to keep the audience that we had because uh, most of the sales of Mad are are done through subscriptions, and we had a huge subscriber base. Mm-hmm. So. We didn't want to lose any of those people, but we also wanted to attract a new audience uh, and a younger audience and and a female audience Hmm. and a more racially diverse audience, because basically the people who were subscribing to MAD were either 11-year-old white boys, um, 11- to 16-year-old white boys, and then forty-five to sixty-year-old white males. That's me. <laughs> yeah, and that's 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 basically the Mad fan base. Um, you know, not exclusively, of course, but right. but uh, predominantly. So, um, you know, how do you how do you keep the people who are subscribing and who love Mad and and and, uh, and are also sometimes very vocal about what they don't like? How do you keep them happy and also? do something that's relevant to this other, um, segment of the population. So I think we were, I think we were doing that pretty successfully. I think given more time, we would have done it even better. Yeah. You know, we, we would have fine tuned it and found a way to really, um, keep those rabid mad fans happy and <laughs> also bring in, uh, you know, a whole new audience. Um, we just weren't given enough time and I think you know maybe priorities changed at Warner Brothers yeah um, you know people were brought in who were not as big a fan of mad as, as those who were in charge before at Warner Brothers right. um, and then you know the decision was made to um, to go to more of a reprint based uh, magazine and I know they sort of walked that back a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think the latest issue, which is the Mad Twenty Dumbest, um, obviously that has to have new material. Yeah. But the next one that comes out after that, um, I have no idea. I mean, yeah. I I, the,
0: I have it, and it it proudly proclaims on the cover: twelve percent new material.
2: So twelve percent. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that, yeah, that makes sense because I know they wanted to keep uh vs. Spy and they wanted yeah. to keep Sergio involved. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much I don't know how much she's doing yeah. in the
0: magazine now. But... I haven't read it yet, so I don't know if there's a new surgery or not. I know Jaffe; it seemingly is finally retired. So, uh, yeah, because I think um, the last John... issue with a new one with him of Holden was the last one you did, I think. There might have been one more after that, but uh, you know. I... Anyway.
2: Yeah, I think there was there was maybe one or two more after me because I know Johnny Sampson. Uh, I know I, I know he's in the Mad twenty and I, I think he did the fold in in the Mad twenty yeah, and I yeah, think he
0: right.
2: I think that might have been his first one.
0: Yeah. And then it has a little caricature of Jaffe in the corner. This guy's good or something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> something like that to kinda pass the torch if somebody else is gonna do the fold ins. So but the current issue has another reprint, so it's like I don't know how often they're gonna do new fold ins or not. So um a couple of questions that aren't isn't really, you know getting into sensitive issues I'm just kind of curious um was it always the decision to start over again with number one once you moved to California
2: uh no okay um that was something we struggled with okay and um you know we went back and forth quite a bit about um how people would react and is there really any uh, point to doing it you know does it does it give us a sales boost or whatever um I think ultimately it was just decided that because, you know, once we went down the road of, um, you know, doing a new logo, which was reminiscent of the original logo. Yeah,
0: that was my other question, is like, was it your decision to do the original logo or a version of it? <laughs> um,
2: that was my decision. Okay. Um, I, I really, I love the traditional MAD logo. Um, I, I was never a fan of the italicized version. Mm-hmm um when they when they did the did it on a slant, yeah, um I never thought that looked good <laughs> um, and so I thought, well, maybe just go back to the straight up and down um non italicized version, but then I've just always loved that Harvey Kurtzman logo, and I thought, well, what if we did kind of a version of that? So I threw that idea at uh susie hutchinson our art director and doug thompson the our design director and they were all over it they loved they loved that idea and um so they started exploring you know how do we do something that's kind of slick and modern um but looks like that harvey kurtzman logo immediately when you, when you see it uh i so to answer the earlier question i think I think once the publishers saw the content, they saw the new logo, um, I think they just immediately thought, well, now it, it kind of makes sense just to renumber it, start at number one, because right. it, it really is a, a fresh look and a a new direction.
0: Right and did you have anything to do with i think you were gone by this point but i can ask anyway uh with the uh issue that uh, w- eventually was used as it were in once upon a time in hollywood for quentin tarantino because sometimes I, things like that are planned way in advance so
2: <laughs> yeah i actually I did um have something to do with that i i was um contacted by a producer on the movie Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and she said Quentin's a big fan and and he would really love to have you guys do a parody of the fictional show Bounty Law which is in the movie Mm -hmm. and at that point she couldn't really tell me that much about the movie just that it's you know takes place in the 60s and Leo DiCaprio is this actor and he had appeared in this show called Bounty Law and my initial reaction was kind of cold because I thought I thought you know what it's it's not a show unless they're showing a lot of this show in the movie Mm -hmm. which it was my understanding they weren't you know you're just gonna see little clips here and there I thought how do you do a parody of something that nobody's ever seen (laughs) yeah yeah like it didn't make sense to me so um, you know I mean I talked I talked to uh the publishers about it and you know I let people know that this was kind of an offer that was out there but I kind of sat on it for a while and I, I I said you know I'm gonna have to talk to some people and get back to you basically as we told the uh, producer mm-hmm. so um, so I did that I just kind of thought about it for like maybe a month or so and then the idea hit me that what if we what if we played it like it's a long lost mad satire
1: <laughs> and and we actually pretend like this show existed. Mm-hmm.
2: And and I thought, well then, you know, we can do things and it doesn't really matter if people have seen it or not, because nobody's seen it. And but we're we're kind of in on the joke. We're we're actually saying this is a show that nobody remembers. It's not in reruns anywhere. It's not on ETV <laughs> it's not It's not on uh, TV land Um, But we found this When we moved from You know, Matt from New York to California We found this story And it's, you know, brilliantly drawn And and it's funny And we just thought, why not present it Whether people know what it is or not
1: Mm
2: -hmm. So it was at that point That I called the producer back And I said "Um, I think we'd love to do this
1: Hmm.
2: Um, And so Then um, very shortly after that, um, I was released from my job,
1: mm.
2: <laughs> and I remember calling Susie Hutchinson, and I said, uh, um, "You know, one of the loose ends that's out there is this uh, Quentin Tarantino project, and I was the only one who had been in contact with this producer, oh,
1: wow. <laughs>
2: and and I, but I, I still had the scrap of paper that had her phone number on it, so I gave that to Susie." And um, and then she took it and ran with it.
0: And hmm. um, the rest is history. <laughs> Actually, they yeah. supposedly—I just found this out—put a mini version of it uh, in uh, the like the 4K edition of the. <laughs> of the movie with a seven inch single also. And I was like, wow. Oh really? Yeah. So I'm going to have to look for that one. You know, I just have the standard DVD, but anyway, um, one, one other
2: little tidbit I remember is I, uh, yeah, even before that producer contacted me, Tom Richmond called me,
1: Mm-hmm.
2: and he said i did this thing for this quentin tarantino movie um i did some artwork for it um it's a fake tv guide okay. cover yeah. and, a, and a fake mad cover and um you know it's supposed to look like jack davis or one of the mad artists from that time did it right. and he said you're you're going to be getting um you know somebody's gonna be contacting you for permission mm-hmm. to 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 make the mad cover
1: mm-hmm.
2: um and he said, you know i I just want to let you know i um I'd appreciate it if you green light this and you know just push it through
1: mm-hmm.
2: and uh and I said oh, okay well we'll we'll see yeah. um you know, Tom and I are good friends, so I gave him a hard time <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, but uh <laughs> You know, sometime later, like a couple of weeks later, um, sure enough, um, somebody sent me the image and said, you know, this is by Tom Richmond, and we need permission from BAD to um, use this in the film. So I just immediately um, said, yes, this is great. Um, please go ahead. But um, I think that was the first I'd heard of the project, and I think it was after that that the, the producer contacted me about doing the
0: satire. Hmm. Yeah, I'm just kind of curious how this, and if you were involved so that's that's pretty cool that you kind of had one last gasp as it were
2: <laughs> uh, well I, I, I you know I thought it was brilliant and um, Tom's artwork was amazing yeah, I mean he yeah. made it look so much like um, that period you know the early 60s I and mean, yeah. it was just it you know uh, I just can't say enough good things about it it was just it just blew me away how how good it was but it kills me that i almost said no to it i mean it almost didn't happen (laughs) like if i had just if i just told her no yeah um she would have you know just went away and probably never contacted me again about it and it never would have happened yeah um so i'm really i'm really glad i took the time to think about it and, and sort of wrap my head around something that i thought would would be a good way to approach
0: it yeah they might have just done the tv guide cover and that was the end of it or something right yeah
1: um
0: i don't know i guess i got permission on that one but that's not your publication so i don't know what went on there um maybe i'll have to interview tom and find out his take on all this but
2: yeah tom tom uh, was actually invited to the set and met quentin and uh, i'm sure he's got a lot of good interesting background info on the project
0: all right. Well, I'll, I, I've met him a few times, so I'm sure I can uh, seduce him to be on the show. <laughs> anyway, um, I guess I, I could ask it this way to try and be very delicate. Uh, you know, did you know or have any inkling that they were going to let you go, or was it just like a slap in the face? Like, oh, I read it like the next day in the papers. You know, it's like, wow. <laughs>
2: um, well I didn't read it after the fact.
0: Okay. But, uh, okay.
2: Yeah, it was a big surprise. And okay. um, there were other people that were let go a couple of days before I was. And, um, I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. Some of the people have been with DC for years and years. Wow. And, uh, yeah, so, and it was a big shock to everyone, yeah. I think.
0: because my opinion like it or not is i I wish they kept you and got rid of a lot of other people but hey it's not not my choice to make but um i can't say i disagree with you there (laughs) okay moving on i know this is very sensitive so i appreciate you talking to me a bit about it um uh so besides roswell and the new yellow submarine um what's next for you and uh how can people get in contact with you
2: Well, I'm doing a lot of conventions this year. Um, As it turns out, I've got for the next, uh, well, I've got one in a couple of weeks here in Michigan, which is where I'm living now. And uh, I've got like one every month at least um, between now and October. Um, So I'll be out there. People can come and see me at conventions. Uh, I'll be a special guest at Comic Con in San Diego. And uh, I'd love love to meet people out there. Um, beyond that, just on Facebook. Um, I don't have my Roswell website up and running at the moment. Mm-hmm. But um, people can find me on Facebook. And, uh, you know, I'm always happy to connect with people and answer questions.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much, Bill, for being my guest today. I really appreciate it. And I will talk to you soon. <laughs> Uh, it's
2: my pleasure, Mark. Um, good to talk to you and I'll, I'll see you at uh, I'm sure I'll see you at an, up- at an upcoming show.
0: Thank you for listening, and thank you, Bill Morrison for being my special guest. Episode number 68 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and/or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew, the Slow Poisoner, Goldfarb, and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2020, Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night.
1: I love you